You're listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. Today, Kathy speaks with Kristen Wagner, Senior Vice President of the U.S. Legal Division and General Counsel with our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. In this episode, they discuss the landmark Arlene's Flowers and Masterpiece Cake Shop cases and the future of religious freedom, and Kristen's personal reflections on her career and her role in this cultural moment. And now, here's Kathy. Well, thanks, Kristen Wagner, for joining us on this edition of Engage Arizona, our um, Center for Arizona Policy podcast. And by way of introduction, let me just say that Kristen serves as Senior Vice President of the United States Legal Division and Communications with Alliance Defending Freedom. And so you oversee, what, 100 attorneys plus? Basically, everything that happens in the United States, you're overseeing for Alliance Defending Freedom. Is that accurate? When it comes to communications, legislation, and litigation. Yes. Okay, so that that's most of and that's most of what that is, ADF that is, is doing. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't um, I don't oversee the Blackstone programs and some of the sure. training that we do as well and some of those areas. Um, there are people far more equipped to do that. But. Well, and of course at Center for Arizona Policy, I I always say that at least in Arizona that CAP is the policy go to and that ADF is the legal go to. And you know we've had such close um, working relationship for so many years and um, always try to say okay what can we pass as legislation versus what's a court case, and how do we set up the best court cases and a lot of those things. So we're, we're really grateful for ADF's work. Well, and CAF has been a great partner for us. I wish we had partners like that in every state. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I guess give me just the, you know, the, the brief overview of ADF in case someone's not familiar with ADF to start with. Sure. Well, we're the world's largest legal organization that's committed to protecting sanctity of life and religious freedom. In terms of our record, we have played um, different roles in about 54 Supreme Court victories over the course of the ministry. Um, Most notably, we've represented parties in cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and won in nine cases in just the last seven years, including some names most of your listeners, I think, might recognize. Hobby Lobby, Conestoga Woods, Little Sisters, Zubik, uh, Town of Greece. Read, um, as well as Masterpiece Cake Shop and Niflo this last term. Well, and we'll be talking about those, I'm sure. Before we get into some of that, just share a little bit about yourself. I remember that you came to ADF from Washington State. Was that home and where you grew up? Or? Yes, I've spent my whole life there, except while I was in law school. So, born and raised in Washington. So, are you missing the rain, or is that... <laughs> funny I was sitting in a soccer game this morning and, uh, saying to someone else who was from Washington and had moved to Arizona I never need another cloudy day and she was completely agreeing she's like these people that want rain I don't understand it yeah, yeah, yes yes so, we're, no, we're I love blessed. Arizona yeah, we're blessed with lots of sunshine well in let's see law school at Regent do I remember that right mm-hmm. yes okay. Regent University so what prompted you to go to law school or why law school well, it's, it's kind of a, an unusual story. Um, you know, I was the second college graduate in my family next to my dad. Um, we didn't have lawyers, any lawyers in our family. Um, but when I was at camp, church camp actually, as a young adolescent, I really felt God impress on me a desire and a calling to go to law school to defend religious freedom. And so that really kind of helped me navigate my life through some pretty difficult years being a strong-willed child. Um, And I'm so grateful that he did. It didn't take the path that I thought it would and that I didn't come to a public interest firm until I practiced for 17 years. So it was a different path than I expected, but one I'm really glad to have taken. And you practiced with a private law firm in Washington State, correct? I did, yes. I clerked at the Washington Supreme Court and then went to Ellis Lee and McKinstry, a firm in downtown Seattle. 
It's a boutique firm there and practiced there my whole career for 17 years, went up through the ranks of made partner and uh, just loved my time in that firm. So what, what, why leave? I mean, why leave that, your home territory and, and go to a group like Alliance Defending Freedom? Well, my dad had, has had a tremendous influence on my life and just from a young age was really emphasizing to me that we all have a purpose in life and that as the Bible gives us examples of David and Nehemiah and Esther and Deborah, that we have to find that purpose and to be a risk taker um, to do what we know to be right. And so I think it had just been percolating in my spirit, this growing sense of am I, am I doing enough? And honestly, it was reading the court's Windsor decision, which was mm. the first same-sex marriage decision, and then the case of Baronel Stutzman that came up in Washington State, or Norlene's Flowers wanting to take that case and be more involved, but seeing what it would mean to my partners and our business there and the significant pressure and just knowing I wanted to be in with both feet because I felt like there was so much at stake for not just myself, not just our own firm, but really for future generations. Well, and so let's talk about Barry Nail Stutzman and Jack Phillips both. I mean, certainly two heroes for those of us who are um, in the battle for religious freedom and their courage and willingness to step forward. Have you, so Baronel, you've been with her since the beginning? Yes. Um, I'm, when, I, when her case first started, I was still at my firm. Um, it was in 2012. Mm -hmm. So I came over in 2013 to ADF and I brought with me the Stormins case, the pharmacist conscience yes. rights case and then was working at my firm in the background on Baronell's case, but was not on the pleadings or in any formal capacity. So once I came over to ADF, then I entered a formal appearance. So with Baronell, let's, for anyone who may not be familiar with this story, of course, Arlene's Flowers in Washington State, longtime florist serving a, a young man named Rob for, what, nine years? Yes. Um, did all kind of flower arrangements, is what I remember. But he came in and wanted... Um, Baronel to do flowers for his same, his wedding to another man. What happened then? Well, and it, another significant portion of that is that almost all of the arrangements that he asked her to do, nearly three dozen in the course of that time, were always custom arrangements. So it wasn't as if he was buying just walking in and getting a flower arrangement. Right? No, he mm -hmm. never would do that. He and they would work together on developing what should the vase look like, what should the what should the message be, and they loved to work together. In fact, you know, Baronel often says Rob was a friend to her. And he knew she was religious and she knew he was gay. And it made no difference to their friendship. Um, he had come in. She knew he was going to come back to specifically talk to her about doing the flowers for his wedding. When he came in, she gently took his hand in the corner of the store and said, Rob, I'm sorry, I can't do your flowers because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. They talked about his wedding. They talked about whether his mom would attend, who would walk him down the aisle, how he got engaged. And she referred him to three other florists who she knew would do a good job for him. They hugged. He left. A few days later, or I think it was a week or so later, she ended up with a certified letter from the Attorney General who said that she would either need to do same-sex weddings or give up the wedding business altogether. And the point that, that I've heard you make over and over again that I think is so important for people to grasp is that the Attorney General is saying that Baronelle wouldn't do it. She was discriminating against, against Rob because he was a gay man. When if she was discriminating against Rob because he was a gay man, she wouldn't have done all those, the three dozen flower arrangements, the, the creative, you know, special flower arrangements with him. It was an event that she couldn't participate in because of her faith. 
Absolutely, and it's a critical distinction because in all of these cases, our clients serve everyone who walks in the door. They want to serve them, they're eager to serve them, but they don't celebrate all events or promote all messages, and they never have. Long before this issue came up, that's been true um, in these different cases. So we really try to, to help people understand it's not who the person is that's requesting it, it's what the message is, what the event is, and that's a critical distinction. So let's talk about Jack Phillips. And of course, you um, the first time that you had or argued in the U.S. Supreme Court was on behalf of Jack and Masterpiece Cake Shop, right? <laughs> yeah, it was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. When, how many feet away were you from the nine justices? And I don't that, know, it was pretty close. I, yeah, close enough to see their eyeballs yeah, they, and how they were thinking about each other's questions. It was, it was great fun. <laughs> so, briefly, Jack's story. I mean, similar to Bear Nails, but he would not use his talent to create a cake for a wedding. Absolutely. And, you know, Jack opened his business 25 years ago, and from the moment he opened those doors, he and his wife had decided there would be some cakes he wouldn't be able to create. So he has a whole history of declining different cakes based on the message, based on the event and what that cake is designed to celebrate and express. Um, he's declined cakes that were anti-American, cakes that have, he won't do cakes that have alcohol, he won't design cakes celebrating Halloween, marijuana use he's declined, satanic celebrations, believe it or not, that actually has come up. <laughs> oh, amazing. And then, of course, when they came in and asked him to design for a same-sex wedding, he said, I'm sorry, guys, I can't do this. Um, I'm happy to sell you anything else in my store or even make custom cakes for you for other events. Um, that wasn't good enough. They gave him the bird, said a few choice words, and then picketed him, boycotted him, and got the Colorado Commission to sue him. And the Colorado Commission ruled against him, and that's what landed you in the U.S. Supreme Court. So with a tremendous victory this in June of, what, 2017, with, with Jack winning that case. But talk to us about the opinion and what the Supreme Court did in just about that, that whole experience. Sure. Um, well, the, the decision, it was a 7-2 to two victory, and there were two claims that we made. One was free exercise of religion, and the second was free speech. But the principle is the same for both of those claims, which is that um, all Americans, including creative professionals, should have the right to speak and live consistent with their religious convictions. And the rule would apply just not only to Jack Phillips, but to anyone who has a conviction um, on any particular issue. No one should be compelled to speak a message that violates the core of who they are. Uh, with this process of the Colorado Commission, as it was going up through the court system, the Colorado commissioners um, said that there was no place for religion in the marketplace. Um, and these are the guys that are, I should say guys and gals that are deciding the case. They said religion has no place in the marketplace. Um, they told Jack that his beliefs could be compared to those of Nazis and racists and openly compared them. Um, and they stripped him of 40% of his business, ordered him to re-educate his family, and ordered him to submit reports to the government on a quarterly basis of every time he declined to design a cake and tell the government why. So it's a really egregious order. When we won 7-2, to two, the court affirmed the principle that the government cannot banish people of faith from the marketplace because of their views on marriage. And what I think is the most uh, meaningful and important part of that decision isn't just that, but I think it really rejected the most vicious talking point of those who would oppose Jack's freedoms, and that is that we can compare beliefs on marriage to racism, and the court flatly rejected that and rebuked the Colorado Commission for making the comparison.
I think that's, I mean, the facts that, that you've just shared often get lost in, in any of the discussions that we've had about masterpiece in some of these cases. And I think that point about if we elevate discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation to the level of discrimination on the basis of race, then it is, I mean, it means that those of us who hold um, religious beliefs, biblically-based beliefs on the issue of homosexuality, about sexual, um, that marriage is only between one man and one woman, then we're the equivalent of a racist bigot. And that is a very dangerous um, threat to our freedom, um, to freedom in general. I mean, that's what, I, you know, this all so much comes down to freedom and that even those who may not agree with us on marriage views or on, on what our religious beliefs might be, they should be deeply concerned about freedom. Absolutely. And, I mean, that, that comparison is so dangerous for us to be making. Um, and there are many ways to deal with different issues in the law, but to suggest that um, if you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, you are no different than someone who believes in white supremacy um, is not only wrong, objectively wrong, but um, it threatens to vilify anyone who holds orthodox beliefs on human sexuality. Well, one of the things, one of the life experiences that I've had that I think I will always remember is being at the Supreme Court on December 5th of 20. <laughs> What, 26, 2017? 2017? Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to think of what, what year Can was you it? 2017. It's almost a year yes, ago. <laughs> yes. That, um, and, and seeing you all come out of the Supreme Court and walk down those majestic steps and just seeing Jack and Baronel with him and, and you fighting. And it just was one of those times that's just like a chill bump, you know, kind of moment that to be grateful for those who are fighting for the freedom of all of us. But for Jack, it hasn't stopped with that Supreme Court case. So update us on he's subject to another complaint. Is that what has happened? I think it was something like 24 days after we won Jack's case, the Colorado Commission um, issued charges against, or, or the executive director said they would pursue formal charges against Jack again. What happened was, on the same day that the Supreme Court agreed to hear Jack's case, a lawyer from Colorado called his shop and asked him to design a cake that was pink on the inside and blue on the outside. And this lawyer said he was wanting the cake to celebrate his transition from a man to a woman. And Jack, of course, politely, respectfully said, I'm sorry, I can't design that cake, um, was very kind to him. Uh, a few weeks later, we believe that the same person called, at least it was from the same number, called again and asked for a cake celebrating Satan with satanic symbols on the cake. And Jack again declined that cake. So clearly it was a setup. Um, the Colorado Commission nonetheless decided to pursue it and Jack finds himself in court again. And the irony of it is Colorado is really taking a very different position this time than even what it took before the United States Supreme Court. So we're optimistic that it will end well and there are plenty of cases in the queue that um, I think will prompt the court to decide in Jack's favor, favor, either in his case or in another case. And we have to talk about NIFLA too because that helps here. Yes, well, and um, before we jump to NIFLA, let's talk, go back to Baronell because after Masterpiece came down, then the U.S. Supreme Court took Baronell's case and put it back to the Washington State Supreme Court where you had argued that case, and of course a very liberal, left-leaning Supreme Court, I listened to at least part of those, those arguments, went 9-0 to zero against Baronell. Where, what, and so they're supposed to reconsider in light of Masterpiece. What's the status of that case now? Well, and I think going back just one little step further, um, remember that in the Masterpiece decision, the court affirmed what it had said in Obergefell. It said that those who believe marriage is between a man and a woman 
um, that they are decent and honorable people that are basing those beliefs on reasonable religious and philosophical premises. Um, and the court said in Masterpiece that those beliefs are to be protected by the Constitution, and in some instances, so will the speech. And that often gets lost mm -hmm. in Masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So then you get to Baronell's case, which also has this hostility argument in it that the court and the Attorney General have been uniquely, uncharacteristically hostile to her mm -hmm. faith, um, and the fact that the arrangements are custom, so she's asked to create expression that is custom, um, that violates her faith. So the case went back down to the Washington Supreme Court. We filed our opening brief last week, I think it was. Mm -hmm. The weeks go so fast. Um, and we're in the midst of briefing that now. So I would assume there's a, a fair likelihood that Baronell ends up before the U.S. Supreme Court again. Yes, I would assume so too. <laughs> yes, I think that's true, but it doesn't need to be. Right. Um, you know, because we filed supplemental briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, to ensure, just to make one more pitch to the court of you need to send this back down in light of Masterpiece. The Attorney General actually opposed that and said, no, you can just tell her she loses right here and now. And one of the things we based it on was how the Attorney General treated Bernal. He sued her without an initial complaint from the couple. He sued her under a law that no one else has been sued under in Washington State except for her in this instance. And there was a similar complaint filed against a coffee shop owner who was gay and kicked out, um, said terrible things to patrons, kicked them out because of their religious convictions. And uh, the Attorney General didn't respond in the same way to them. So we're hopeful there are grounds for the Washington Supreme Court to change its decision because of these intervening facts. But if it doesn't, we will go back up to the United States Supreme Court. So NIFLA was, you mentioned NIFLA, and that was another significant U.S. Supreme Court victory. I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about all of the, the nine victories, uh, or, or what, yeah, <laughs> what, all the, all right, the right, victories. Right, right. But NIFLA was a big free speech, um, so share with us about that. Well, when I'm talking about what the court did last term or about Masterpiece, I don't think you can consider Masterpiece alone in a vacuum. Because uh, what's important about that is they all came out in the same term, right? So before mm -hmm. those decisions came out, the court was aware of how it would be deciding those in the opinions. And so while Masterpiece covers the free exercise waterfront, NIFLA covers free speech. NIFLA is the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, and they have their members are made up of pregnancy centers, medical clinics and non-medical clinics. They serve women and provide practical resources to those women, um, not only to choose life, but long after they make their decision, providing support if they choose abortion, as well as providing support to their families as they seek to welcome this new baby into their lives. In NIFLA, California passed a law that forced these pro-life religious pregnancy centers to point the way to a free or low-cost abortion. And our argument was you can't compel speech like that, that the government has no business telling people that they have to express a message that violates their convictions. That's the same point in Baronell's case and in Jack's case. Um, and that was, of course, a tremendous victory. What was the outcome of the judges? I can't, justices, I mean. Well, was it, it was a closer decision. Yeah, it was five, five four. to four, but mm -hmm. it was a broader decision in terms of its mm -hmm. impact because Justice Thomas explicitly said that you cannot co-opt private voices to express the government's message. And it's a really powerful decision. And Justice Kennedy's concurrence in it 
is amazing. Um, so I'd encourage your listeners to read it. So let's talk about what happens in Arizona, because we have big news in Arizona that on January 22nd, the Arizona Supreme Court is going to consider the Brush and Nib case. It's a little bit different than Masterpiece and Baronel in that it's what's called a pre-enforcement action. So share with us about the Brush and Nib case. Well, first of all, on the terms of the pre-enforcement action, pre-enforcement actions are actions where someone is filing a lawsuit before they're actually put in jail for violating the law. They are a hallmark of civil civil rights um, cases in the, in the civil rights era because the premise behind them is that Americans shouldn't have to wait to challenge an unjust law until they are threatened with jail time or put in jail or experience that penalty. Brush and Nib is owned by uh, Joanna Kosky and Brianna Duca, and they are a hand painter and calligrapher. They do custom art, so decorations for the home, also for events, including weddings. And they can't create wedding custom arrangements, custom invitations, custom signs, uh, vows that would violate their convictions. So they filed this action um, asserting that they want to protect their own rights, but also the rights of all Arizonans to be able to speak and create freely. Because this, under the City of Phoenix Ordinance, which, which prohibits discrimination like these other laws on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, if they decline to do calligraphy, if Joanna didn't use her calligraphy talent to create wedding invitations for a same-sex couple, but they could be fined up to $2,500, is it per day? Or something per day, per, per day. violation. Per violation, and then what, up to six months in jail? Six months in jail per day per violation. So it that's is extreme. Incredible. And we had two lower court decisions in Arizona that were just, um, I don't even know how to describe them. Um, <laughs> I don't think but, you should. Yeah, no, 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 we're licensed attorneys, so we, we've, got, we've got some ethical rules here. But let's just say that we're very hopeful that the Arizona Supreme Court will see um, what's wrong with these laws and uphold freedom and that we'll get a really solid Arizona Supreme Court case. So again, that's January 22nd, I believe at 10.15 in the morning. Um, we certainly urge prisoners, um, listeners, excuse me, urge listeners to be in prayer about that case. And, you know, when I look at Joanna and Bree and Jack and Baronel, the courage, they are standing for, we don't know how many business owners out there have just folded and they're not, you know, carrying on the fight. But these people are willing to, to stand up and to fight for our freedom and our beliefs. And so I'm just so grateful um, that, that you all have these clients and that you've been able to do the defense that you've been able to put forward. Well, thank you. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to for listeners to understand the underlying principle that it is about our beliefs. It is about the truth on human sexuality. But the rule that comes out of this case by the Arizona Supreme Court really benefits everyone in Arizona. It benefits, um, you know, the lesbian graphic designer who doesn't want to design for a one-man, one-woman rally. Mm-hmm. It benefits the atheist website designer who doesn't want to promote the Catholic Church or create a custom website for them. The rule applies to both sides because tolerance has to be a two-way street. And I know you've heard me say this before because we've talked about it. Our civil liberties do travel together. So if we care about our pocketbooks, we care about female empowerment, we care about Um, all of these different issues, economic liberties, we first need to protect religious freedom. And we're hopeful that this will, that the opinion will give some guidance on Arizona law and because, you know, Arizona law is not as strong as we would like for it to be. You know, we don't, at least we don't have a statewide law like the Phoenix law, but we see that effort growing. And so we're really looking forward to seeing how this comes. Well, let me shift gears a little bit and start to wrap up maybe a little bit. Um, So obviously, 
um, what, one of the younger women on our staff asked me this question this morning to ask you. So like as a woman, how did God prepare you for this role? That you obviously have a very unique voice, um, a significant position of leadership, making an incredible impact. So how did God prepare you to be able to do what you're doing? Wow. Um, well, I would say the first thing was he gave me a great dad. Um, a dad that, you know, I'm 46, and so it, I have a little bit different experience than maybe the millennials. But even when I was growing up, to be raised in the Christian faith and to have a dad, though, that would say, as a woman, you have a calling on your life. It's likely that it will be as a wife and as a mother, but I believe God has another calling on your life, too and that you need to figure out what that is and live with it. And to have someone always standing with me to say, are you, are you being a risk taker? Um, that's probably the biggest blessing that I have, as well as a partner, my husband, who supports that calling and really sees it as our family's calling. We do this together, which is why we moved from Seattle to Arizona. It wasn't a comfortable journey to make, um, but he has been with us in that. And then lastly, I would just say in those dual roles, um, I think God has prepared me by having me fail at times because the humility and dependence on Him that that brings in all of those roles I think contributes to a healthy dynamic in the workplace, in the law, and I think it brings another perspective. Um, I hope this doesn't sound too much of a stereotype, but I think a woman sees things differently often than a man. And the humanity of what we're talking about is critical. So many times as Christians and even conservatives, we focus just on the principle or the cause, and we forget the people. And so to be able to speak and influence this organization and the movement to say, let's talk about the people impacted by what we're doing has been a real blessing and something that I think God's helped me with. Yeah, I can identify with that because it was my dad that during law school, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be this conservative Christian woman, so why am I in law school? <laughs> and, and my dad said, um, don't drop out. You don't know how the Lord's going to use it. And that, yeah. you know, those prophetic yes. words, I didn't drop out. I, you know, passed the bar. And then, you know, this is the type of work that I've been doing, you know, after being a wife and a mother. So I very much um, agree with that. Well, as we talk about just, you talk about the value of being a woman. What what challenges? I mean, any speak to any of the challenges that you see or how you, how you deal with the challenges, maybe. <clears throat> I've been asked that before, and I don't think my answer is very good, but it's <laughs> all that I know. You probably have an even better answer um, given the experiences you've had. But for me, it is um, I pray about it. I ask God to help me to respond in the right spirit because I do believe that sexism is still present in a lot of different forms. Um, I've experienced it and been penalized for, for being a woman. Um, but my response has typically been, short of something that, you know, would be sexual harassment or something <laughs> illegal, has been to put my head down and do a good job. Um, my dad always said to me, you are not going to be the smartest person in the room, but you can always be the hardest worker. And in my experience with that and a little bit of God's favor, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man. You just want his favor and blessing. So as we as we wrap up, what any final words as far as just you know the person out there that's listening, and they're you know they're just concerned about what's going on. I mean, any final words or kind of like the path ahead or, or what what the person sitting listening to this should be concerned about how they should respond. 
Well, I, there are some practical things, um, and we could get into those. You touched on showing up to Brianna and Joanna's brush and nib argument. Mm -hmm. That's a way to take a stand to show your support. Write op-eds, write um, letters to the editor, um, support organizations like CAP and others who are taking a stand, who file amicus briefs in the court. There are all those kinds of practical things. Um, but I would also say do not grow weary in doing good. Mm -hmm. um, recently, I've just been feeling this way of um, are, are those who hold our views getting fatigued? Not because they don't believe in, the, in what they, the rightness of what they're doing, but they're just tired of being called names or tired of the baggage that seems to come with it. But when you step back and you look at the gospel and the, how it promotes human flourishing, we can't afford to do that because God has called us for this moment and this hour, and he trusted us enough to live in this season, no matter how hostile it seems. And at ADF, and I know at CAP too, we're, we're hopeful, we're optimistic. I mean, nine Supreme Court victories in religious liberty in the last seven years. We don't have cause to be dismayed, and you never know what God can do when you put yourself in his hand to be used. When I heard one of your colleagues, um, Jordan Lawrence, this week, I heard, I heard Jordan Lawrence share about Jeremiah and how God commanding Jeremiah to go out and speak and stand and do all of this, and whether they, knowing that there would not be any response, that we're to be obedient, that we're to, we're to stand in this, in this age that we're in, and we don't know how God's going to use it. We don't see the big picture. Um, certainly, would you have ever thought that really nine victories at the U.S. Supreme Court would have happened in such a short period of time? And so, you know, we know that we trust God to be the one to bring the victories and that, you know, we are we are hopeful. We're not going anywhere. We're going to continue to do what we've done, you know, an election or, or how a court case turns. It's not going to change what, what we're doing, that we're going to continue moving forward. So, well, and I should mention the ADF website is ADF Legal. ADFlegal.org, yes. So I would encourage people to check out ADFlegal.org to, um, especially um, you guys do a great job of giving summaries of the cases and what, what all is going on. And again, remember that date, January 22nd, 10.15 a.m. at the Arizona Supreme Court. So thanks, Kristen, so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. 